This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. Join us for an upcoming Green Lectures on March the 6th, featuring Dr. Rob Kanoy speaking on the Book of Revelation, John's Vision of the Cross. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation with Emma Green, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes and this week's sponsor. For the next few episodes, you'll hear interviews with the director for Faith for Justice, Michelle Higgins, Jennifer Harvey, the author of Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America, an extended conversation with Brian McLaren, and Emmy Award winner Melvin Bray. This episode is sponsored to you by Travis Peterson and Launch Mission Creative. Former Cooperative Baptist Fellowship graphic design specialist, Travis Peterson is an award-winning designer and dedicates his work to helping churches, ministries, and missional organizations. Travis worked with CBF during their rebranding phase and helped CBF win multiple awards for designs on CBF's public relations material, advertising, the CBF Journal Assembly Guidebook, Fellowship Magazine, and more. As a former youth minister, graphic design missionary, and now owner of Launch Mission Creative, Travis shares Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Launch Mission Creative will help your church, ministry, and missional organization shine a little brighter through brand identity in the form of logo, business cards, and letterheads, printed material like weekly church bulletins, brochures, annual reports, and event signage, or even a new website or social media campaign. Best of all, he'll work with your budget. Contact Travis today at launchmissioncreative.com or search for Launch Mission Creative on Facebook. Launch Mission Creative. We serve people who serve people. All right, our guest for this week's podcast is Emma Green, staff writer at The Atlantic, where she writes on politics, policy, and religion. If you weren't around in 1857, The Atlantic began just before the spark of the American Civil War. After the last 160 plus years, it has covered national debates, world news, and cultural trends. The Atlantic only hit a new stride when it brought on Emma Green in 2012, and now they're hitting a new stride of journalistic excellence all the way from Israel. Emma, thank you for joining the podcast. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So why Israel? So I am back and forth from the Atlantic's offices in D.C. doing some coverage here. And as my boss said, as I was setting out 
for my first trip over here. I don't know if you've heard, but there's a little bit of religion in Israel. Uh, this has definitely turned out to be the case. This is a, a vastly complicated place. Um, Israel and Palestine are both home to uh, enormous religious traditions, uh, vast diversity, a lot of complexity, and I'm enjoying getting to learn about the different communities here and do some writing here as well. Hmm. We'll get back to that in a bit. Uh, before, we, before we get to your work, uh, tell us a little bit more about you. So I am a reporter for The Atlantic and have been there for about five and a half years. Um, I've had a number of different jobs there working as our managing editor. I served as the national editor, a short sentence education editor, uh, working on our politics team. And now I get to uh, be a staff writer. And essentially that means I go around to different communities, mostly in America up until now, but now a little bit farther afield, and get to learn about people's religious experiences, trying to chronicle some of the biggest issues in religion and religion and politics today. Well, you know, often we're we're reading your words, but we rarely get to hear a story of the people bringing us news. So uh, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Uh, what's been your experience? Uh, what brought you to the Atlantic? <laughs> so the the story from pre-Atlantican years, uh, I am a Tennessean and grew up there uh, most of my life. I was actually born in Kentucky, but I was in Tennessee for, for most of my life, and I came to Washington, D.C. for school. I went to Georgetown, and I like to say, say that I, I studied uh, not just political science and government, but I, I studied political theory, so sort of the old uh, crinkly dead guys with the spider webs over their eyes, uh, and was really sort of back in that corner of the department where everyone is reading these old texts. Uh, but it was really quite a wonderful experience. I enjoyed Georgetown a lot and enjoyed studying political theory in part because it helped to turn me on to ways of thinking and talking about people's religious lives and community. Uh, this is also a facet of my Georgetown education. Uh, Georgetown uh, often does a YMCA style education, so body, mind, and spirit, although they might not market it that way. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that uh, religious engagement and thinking about religious questions was a mandated part of the curriculum there. Hmm. Well, you certainly hopefully have uh, live streaming services as the Hoyas will have. A, they're going to have a wonderful season this year. They brought Patrick Ewing back. It's, it's going to be getting back to the glory days. I at least hope for you. <laughs> yeah, I was at school during one of the now many periods of not such great basketball years. So uh, definitely every Hoya is nurtured on the mythos of uh, it's the great years, especially during the 80s. And we'll see if we return to such high heights. I'm hopeful. <laughs> Now, Georgetown and the Atlantic um, are in the same area. So how, how did you find your way from, from school to, to the Atlantic? So the Atlantic has a program for early career journalists uh, called its fellowship program, uh, which is really great. It's a year-long program that gives new journalists the chance to embed with a team and learn about different parts of the newsroom, different topical areas of coverage, 
uh, and see what their skill development can be over the course of that year. And I was able to participate in that, which was really wonderful. I started out on the Atlantic's live events team and then bopped over to the Atlantic.com, which is where I've been ever since. And have uh, had a had a really lucky lucky run there, so it was a, a great opportunity, and I was really grateful to be able to to work there. I've been I've been following your writing since 2016, and one of the things I appreciate most about your work not only is it thoroughly researched and factually sound in this era of fake news, apparently, um, mm. but you write without a clear bias. Your work is deep, it's honest, and it's brilliantly written. And if you haven't found yourself, our listeners, following Emma's work, um, let's give a glimpse into a little bit of the last month. You wrote a story on multiple expressions of the Muslim faith in America through a story of Taz Ahmed, uh, the rise of religious nationalism in 2017 and the dichotomy between the perception and reality, a local perspective on the lives of those facing Palestinian and Israeli conflict, and one of my favorite articles from 2016, the growing tension between Liberty University president and its student base over endorsement of a particular candidate, we'll say. Why, mm. why do you hit on so many different difficult topics? Um, you know, a lot of my writing is just trying to stay abreast of the many, many developments in particularly American religious life, which is where I focus most of my energy. And it's, a really wonderful thing because America is this diverse, intensely religious, uh, intensely divided nation and getting to go back and forth between all these different communities and try to listen as well as I can, write about a lot of different things, keep our readers informed. It's just a wonderful, wonderful job. So I really like it. It's a lot to try to take in and learn with nuance. Uh, how these different communities operate. And I'm always trying to learn as much as I can. Uh, but it really is never a dull moment. And I think American religion is one of these great underserved areas in the mainstream media. And I love being able to, to write into that space. Mm-hmm. Well, from a journalistic standpoint, um, this whole scapegoat line of fake news has got to be frustrating. So how do you how do you push forward to keep doing sound journalism? Mm. I, you know, I've thought a lot about this idea of fake news. I think like everybody who works in journalism over the past year or two, because it really does represent a an existential threat to the way that we function in America as a democracy. And what I mean by that is we depend as a as a nation, as a sort of political community on being able to argue with each other, deliberate, vote different people into office, vote other people out of office. And all of that depends on having a shared sense of common truth or common facts that we can all be operating off of at least the same version of reality and events and be able to use that to disagree with one another and sort of inch our way towards having the kind of democratic republic that we want. And this idea of fake news is really uh, tough and vicious because on the one hand, there is the threat of real fake news. There is actual on social media fake news generated by people who either don't care or don't know enough to do any better. Uh, than to spread things that have not been fact-checked, do not accord to journalistic standards of reporting the truth. 
And then that in turn gets conflated with what the mainstream media does, uh, outlets from television like NBC and CNN to outlets like the Washington Post and New York Times, including the Atlantic from the magazine side. These outlets run by a set of rules, or at least they're supposed to run by a set of rules of journalistic ethics about how they treat sources, how they check and verify information, when they uh, make a mistake being transparent about it, and the conflation of these two topics between the real fake stuff that's just made up whole cloth out of nowhere and the type of journalism that has emerged in the Trump era, which has been rough and tumble based on a lot of anonymous sources, sometimes has involved very high profile and embarrassing mistakes, is really damaging because it undermines in the long run our ability to share that sense of reality, to think that uh, what's being reported in the New York Times is by and large going to be true according to uh, sort of the rules and ethics of journalism, and we can use that kind of information to make our decisions about where we want to be as a society. I'm going to go out and limb and say that you've had this conversation a time or two in the last year or two. <laughs> yes, I have. And I'm sorry if I just launched into a whole disquisition and that wasn't what you were asking for. I just feel so strongly that uh, this idea of fake news and information is so central to how we operate. And um, as a journalist, it really scares me to hear of the distrust in media and to see it that distrust actively sowed. Um, and I think it also is really relevant to the beat that for people who are religious, this is a really big question because it has to do with how are we ascertaining truth? What are we believing is the truth? Um, and I think that is a central and fundamental question. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of resonance here and I, I do feel really strongly about it. Well, here's the good news. That was the question I asked in the second piece is you're immigrant. You can say whatever you want to say while you're on this podcast. So, um, so for you, uh, what, what, for you, what, what are those common truths? What are those common facts that, um, that you think all people should subscribe to? Well, I mean, that's such a, such a big topic. Um, you could mean like, what are, what is the truth about the metaphysical nature of the universe? Um, you could mean, you know, what is religious truth? Uh, Let's zero in uh, I, specifically around uh, this idea of, of, of journalism and uh, fact checking and, and all those different types of things that make for, for sound reporting. Yeah. So I would say the big hallmarks that theoretically in the best of worlds set apart uh, journalistic news making and creation from what could legitimately be called fake news on social media are a number of practices. So the idea that we have some sort of obligation to our sources to be transparent about who we are what we're uh, talking to them about, how we're talking to them, and what context. So is it off the record? Is it on the record? Um, is it something that we're going to use for attribution in print, or is it something that they're just telling us for own knowledge? It's about being transparent about mistakes uh, and really being upfront about how we're making the sausage. So trying to really show how it is that we come to think that we know what we know, trying to check and double check all facts. And it's also coping or copying to making a mistake when that is something that happens, which it does happen. Reporting is really hard. This process, especially in a breaking news environment of trying to report the facts is really challenging. And at times 
just either through sloppiness, through human error, through a misleading source, it's really easy to slip up and, and make an error, either something really simple or something that can be much, much bigger. And I think ultimately the most important part of this journalistic ethics code is to be straightforward when there has been an error and a mistake so that readers can know that that has happened. Um, this is not by any means an exhaustive list of what it means to be an ethical journalist. And there's so, so many resources out there um, from uh, Columbia Journalism Review and Pointer and Neiman and all of these different outlets that sort of track and chronicle uh, journalism that can be sort of tips on that for readers who are interested. But um, I do think that it's important to recognize that journalism is this practice. It's a um, sort of set of, of practices and disciplines that people agree to abide by a certain set of rules. And uh, that's important to acknowledge when we're thinking about how we get our facts and what news we're trusting and what news we're not trusting. Oh, don't worry. We've got about 20 more minutes left of this interview, but we do need to tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Since 1996, Campbell University Divinity School has been providing theological education that is Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. Our calling is to prepare individuals academically, spiritually, and practically to be faithful and skilled ministers in the world. We offer multiple master-level programs, including several dual-degree options, as well as a doctorate of ministry program. Our Master of Divinity degree is flexible enough that individuals can build a program that best suits their interest and calling. Campbell University Divinity School is intentionally inclusive of anyone who can affirm and claim Christ as Lord, the Bible as authority, and ministry as a calling, without debating the details. Our students come from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, and age groups. We believe that the diverse environment of our school enriches each student's experience by providing an opportunity for meaningful conversations and the possibility of learning from someone who is different from you. The most distinctive feature of our school is the way that our faculty, staff, and students care for and support each other both in and out of the classroom. Applications for the Master Level Degree Program and the Doctorate of Ministry Program are open for the upcoming Fall 2018 term. We invite you to join us for one of our Master Level Visitation Days or contact us to schedule an individual visit. Learn more about our programs and apply online at divinity.campbell.edu. In you, Lewis, to this a little bit, uh, in the breaking news era and the 140 characters or less era, um, you know, there, there's a good bit of uh, frustration, I imagine, in working so hard on a piece and thoroughly researching it. Uh, and then along with some of the other aspects that we've hit on. So um, I wonder if you'd share, you know, what motivates your work? What gets you up each day to, to report the news, to follow um, all the different topics that you hit on? Mm. So I think that my job is just such a lucky thing. I get to talk to people about um, their religious beliefs, sometimes their lack of religious beliefs, uh, their confusion, their somewhere in betweenness, but always about these uh, parts of their lives that are often really, really close to their heart and really important to them. Um, the religion beat touches on everything from family and tradition to pop culture to certainly politics and policy and real laws and uh, court decisions that affect people's lives. And I think it's really important to try to chronicle that 
So I feel very, very lucky to be in this position that I'm in and get to learn as much as I can. Um, and ultimately, I just want to try to learn as much as I can and write as well as I can for as long as I can to listen well, to listen widely, to always be learning and trying to improve and do better. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes it is tough. Sometimes, you know, we make those mistakes or there are those knocks on journalism or it is a, a tough thing to try to figure out what the story is. Um, but I, I think trying is, is important because ultimately when done well, uh, I do think that journalism can help people understand their neighbors, uh, understand uh, the facts about their world, the policies and laws that affect them, and ultimately be more empowered. Hmm. Well, you're in Israel, and there's just a small amount of history in those 8,000 square miles. And it makes sense that you're covering religion while you're there. Um, you've obviously do a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to reporting on religion across the world. And I can imagine you've seen a lot of beautiful expressions of faith. And at the same time, you've probably witnessed some mind numbing, horrid expressions of faith. What surprised mm. you the most in, in your work in covering religion? Mm. And you mean here in Israel specifically? Uh, or, or in the U.S. or around the world, wherever. Hmm. Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, what has surprised me most? I, I don't know if this is a surprise necessarily, but I am always struck over and over and over again by how much diversity there is in religious experience and expression. Um, on the one hand, you know, religious studies scholars would say we have a set of tools uh, and, and sort of doorways to understand how religion works in the world. So in certain ways, religion is really decipherable and it's all kind of the same. But when you get down to the local level of talking to people about their specific personal experiences, there really is just such a range of how things can go for people. Um, talking to people who have converted and completely transformed their lives, either transformed through some sort of belief that's transformative or literally changed their name, changed where they lived, changed everything about their sense of identity and the kind of people that they're part of. Um, that is a radical experience. And then there are people who, you know, have been born and bred and raised in a specific church or within the world of Judaism or within a particular tradition of Islam. And uh, there's just such a, a wild range. And I love that diversity because it means that there's a lot to do. And it also means that there's a lot to learn, that even if I like to think that I know something about religion. There's always, always, always something for me to learn and, and grow from and find out that's new. Um, so that, I think, has been the most striking singular theme from my time reporting on religion. From the, the landscape of religion, um, what's the most challenging thing you've written on? Mm. Well... Challenging is an interesting word because it could mean a couple of different things. There are things that are emotionally challenging and difficult, and then there are things that are technically challenging and difficult. Um, sometimes the two overlap. Uh, but I would say that um, I'm always the most careful, uh, or sorry, I shouldn't say that. I always try to be careful, but I always feel the most 
sort of uh, on my guard against making mistakes when I'm trying to wade into legal arena. Um, for example, I wrote a piece in the fall, published a piece in the fall on uh, this law called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, uh, short name RELUPA, or RLUPA, depending on who you talk to, uh, which is all about, uh, it's a federal law that's all about uh, both the religious rights of prisoners and also the religious rights of uh, organizations that are trying to buy land or renovate their churches or uh, sell their lots or whatever it might be having to do with land use. And I bring it up not to make you fall asleep, but because um, this is a highly technical area of the law and specifically when you get down into local zoning codes, it can be really, really complicated to figure out what's happening at the federal, state, and local level to govern any given decision by some sort of local township or local board and how that relates to religious rights. Um, so that's just one example of something that I worked on recently that I spent a ton of time trying to dig into the little tiny details because there's so many ways to, to get tripped up. Um, but, you know, I always try to be careful and I think everything in one way or another is kind of challenging because it always means uh, checking your assumptions, starting fresh, trying to be as humble as possible and learn as much as possible um, when writing about any given community or topic. Hmm. Well, I guess if you enjoy, you know, dusting off the books in the back corner of the uh, uh, Georgetown library to read those ancient, you know, facts and books, then I guess that's, that's interesting reading those local laws. That is fascinating work because what happens on the local level begins to build into small movements to what happens on the national level. So that was a, it was a boring. <laughs> Thanks for the affirmation. And I, I think you're totally right that um, the local story and the national story are often way more connected than we like to think. I think uh, local little tiny uh, sort of, what's the word, like a petri dish or a, a little stage is actually usually hugely illuminating and insightful for understanding these bigger national trends. Too often the media stays at this 30,000 foot level thinking about what's happening in Washington or New York and these halls of power uh, from these really broad perspectives. But actually when you get down into the nitty gritty of people's lives or a local community, there's often tons and tons there that's revealing. Mm. Well, I think too, and, and more should be done on it. Um, we live such siloed lives um, and we're so entrenched um, no matter where we stand on, on so many different ways. And it's difficult to be a person who's not entrenched. Um, but certainly I think telling the stories of, of what's happening on the local level helps us uh, rise out of um, our, our simple worldview at time and help us to see uh, things from a new perspective. Um, uh, because it's so easy to just conform to our particular context, our particular uh, point of view. So, uh, so I applaud you for for writing things on the local level that that matter for the national level. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. And if you ever know of some good local stories, you or your listeners, I'm always in the market for tips. Uh, don't don't invite me to that. I'll, I'll blow up Twitter and you'll get tired of it and block me. Um, so, um, from the landscape <laughs> of religion to. Uh, What's been the most rewarding thing uh, to write on? So it's not be necessarily Debbie Downer, but what's something that's given you life to write on in the last year? Oh, wow. <laughs> what a great question. Um, I often feel like we're spending so much time in this territory of who's fighting with who and which politician is hating on this other politician and, you know, areas of conflict that it can be hard to remember 
that writing can be life-giving and happy and at times even a little bit light. Um, and I'm honestly, this is so sad. I'm scrolling through my mind right now to try to think of the last lighthearted story that I wrote that <laughs> was really uh, not sort of deep in the weeds of some sort of conflict or, or tension. Um, can I cheat a little bit and say something that I wrote two years ago? Or it was maybe like, you know, something slightly past one year ago. Oh, of course, because the Atlantic would love for you to to retweet that story later on for people to see that. Of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, there, I mean, there are a number of stories that I'd love getting to work on. Don't get me wrong. I uh, really love getting to work on most of the stories that I that I report. Um, I will say that the last thing that's coming to mind that was really lighthearted and that um, was, again, sort of pulled out of these realms of conflict and tension and division and existential battles and all this. Uh, we did a series on Christmas music a couple of winters ago, and it was me and a couple of other staffers who uh, did a lot of the songs. And that was just so much fun to get to write about um, All I Want for Christmas is You. And I think I did a Sufjan Stevens Christmas jam or two. And um, that was just really fun. So sometimes we do get to take a break and tag out of the normal, uh, heavy, intense news flow to do something that's a little bit more lighthearted. But a lot of times we're just sticking to the to the big questions. So because there's a lot to cover there. Yeah. So uh, what's happening in Israel right now? Well, um, there was a big story at the beginning of December, which has continued to ripple uh, about uh, President Trump declaring not only that the American embassy would move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, uh, which is something that past American presidents have promised but have not done. Uh, he also recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which is controversial because Jerusalem has always been uh, considered uh, sort of open for debate or up for negotiation in any kind of final status agreement between Israel and Palestine um, in the sort of long-standing hope for a two-state solution from both sides for those people who do hope for such a thing. Um, so this was a, a really big deal, especially in America. There were a lot of people predicting that this would have huge effects, cause massive regional instability, cause massive backlash. And what's interesting is that uh, watching the story unfold from here rather than over there, which is normally my vantage point, um, I got to see things from a different lens, which was that it really didn't devolve in the way that uh, American pundits were predicting. There have been protests here, especially in the territories and on the border with Gaza, a number of arrests, a number of injuries, and I don't want to downplay those at all or minimize them at all. Um, but you know, in terms of Jerusalem itself, uh, the amount of protest and uh, sort of unrest has been pretty limited, especially compared to recent events, even as recent as the summer, when there were massive protests over a different issue having to do with uh, metal detectors installed outside of Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, which is the holy mosque that is in the center part of the old city of Jerusalem. So all of that is to say that um, one of the interesting things being here has been observing the difference between American predictions of the news and what actually is the news from over here, and just trying to get a sense of how um, Israelis see the world, how Palestinians see the world, how all of the people who live here who are neither or both uh, see the world, and, and just trying to take a sample of, of every, every different perspective that is possible and accessible.
you know, we see over here the the stories of a Palestinian teenager being shot down. We see um, the roadside bombs. We see those types of things. But but on the local level, uh, what what gives you hope for the future there? Hmm. Hmm. That's a hard question, and I almost feel like I can't answer it, which is maybe taking a reporterly cop out, but. You know, I really think in a place like this, it's so important to have um, the humility both of recognizing that I'm an outsider and I'm very new here, and this is a really complex place, um, and also that, you know, this is a place where I am trying to report and tell stories, but ultimately I'm sort of an observer, and I don't know that I have a, a firm answer for what hope means uh, for me or for the people here, because I think that answer would change so much depending on who you're talking to. I think the outlook for people living in Bethlehem, for example, is very, very much different than the outlook of people who are living in West Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or Haifa. Uh, so that's a complicated question, and I'm not trying to dodge it, but I do think that um, one of my goals here is to try to be cognizant of uh, where my role is as a reporter and how to faithfully report on different communities and, and their concerns and interests. And I, and I think it's just so, so wildly divergent depending on who you are. Well, I think it's okay. I mean, it would be, yeah, you didn't choose to American explain it there. So I appreciate your willingness to say, Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm an outsider. Um, I think there's some integrity to that. Um, what's next for you? Mm. More writing. I uh, really love getting to dig into big stories and uh, I will just keep writing words as long as they will let me. And I still feel like I have a lot to do and a lot to learn. And so I will go on to the next story, on to the next article and see what I can come up with. If you want to stay connected with Emma, you can visit her at theatlantic.com. You can also follow her on Twitter at Emma O. Green. Emma, thank you for taking time to join the conversation. Um, and thank you for your, your brilliant work. <laughs> well, I don't know about brilliant, but I do appreciate you reading it. And I always appreciate it, getting feedback and tips from readers. So really do uh, tweet at me, email me, get in touch if you have uh, tips on things that you think I should be covering. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net 
For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world, 